If for whatever reason, when we emerge from childhood, our mental frameworks surely aren't that all-encompassing. Surely they're not that good. And sometimes it's not a matter of just growing older and getting some more experience and some more knowledge. It's like sometimes there's some fundamental shifts that need to happen in order for you to function well internally and externally in some environment. And that's what I'm looking at. That's kind of what I call transformation. Is like people experiencing that shift and what causes it and how do they negotiate it and stuff like that. This is the Dr. John Berardi Show, a podcast that seeks important lessons in a seemingly unlikely place amid competing points of view. In each episode, I look at fascinating, sometimes even controversial topics through the minds of divergent thinkers. And together we tease out unifying threads from ideas that may feel irreconcilable. Today's topic, are behavior optimization projects, personal development projects, habit change projects, or any of the self-help initiatives a lot of people are embarking on nowadays actually helping them? In part one, we covered how, maybe surprisingly, academic ideas around habit change and personal development have become so widespread in popular publishing. We talked about why that is, and how we may be able to leverage some of these insights in our own lives. We also talked about how the field of adult education has its own insights about the process of personal transformation, some that are different from the field of psychology. Here in part two, we'll continue discussing transformation learning, looking for insights from a field that hasn't quite enjoyed the popularity of habit and behavior science, but is full of important lessons about human transformation. So, Let's get started. It's certainly easier if we start at the beginning, then we can talk later on about what I think it is more generally. The term transformative learning came about in 1978. This is Dr. Chad Hogan again, who we introduced in part one of this series. He's a professor of educational leadership, policy, and human development at North Carolina State University and is co-editor at the Journal of Transformative Education. There's a couple of publications by Jack Mesro, who was trained as a sociologist, but he was working as a professor of adult education at Teachers College, Columbia University. So he was involved in a, a nationwide study of community college return to work programs. This is like the second wave feminist movement, right? And There's a lot of women who had been socialized into thinking like your place is in the home. I mean, whether it was put that way or not, you know, you're supposed to kind of be a wife and mother and whatever. And in the late 70s, a lot of women were challenging that. They were trying to re-enter the workforce after years out of it. And these community colleges were were preparing them for that. And so as part of this nationwide study where he's, I think he's looking at like 12 programs across the country and doing this evaluation, he said, you know, if you want to know how the programs are in terms of being effective, you know, blah, 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 here it is. But what's more compelling to me, he said, is that these women are experiencing learning and change at a much deeper level than just learning some skills so they can get a job. They're challenging deeply ingrained notions of what it means to be a woman and related things. So he he named that transformative learning and he framed it around the idea that people have mental frameworks. So he's kind of working with like Kuhn's paradigm shift. He's like, you know, we all have these frameworks that we use to understand the world around us, that explain things, that that tell us who we are. And inevitably, all of us are wrong, right? All of us are, are incomplete, if you will. 
And so we all experience it on a fairly constant basis, a, a disconnect between what we experience and the way we're making sense of things. And usually we just kind of roll with it. As long as my way of making sense of things is good enough, I'm good. <laughs> I'm just going to roll, keep what I have. But sometimes they build to a critical mass. And he called this a disorienting dilemma, which is another nerdy academic term, but, but basically cognitive dissonance, you know. And then for people that choose to engage with that dissonance, right? Because you can always ignore it. You can always revert and just, just say, I'm not paying attention to anything else. I, what I believe is what I'm going to believe. But if you do engage with it, then he's like, you know, he outlined a process that involves introspection, some really strong emotions, some unearthing and assessment of like your assumptions about yourself in the world, but also a social process of um, finding solidarity with others, again, who've been there, dialogue, taking chances, exploring things, developing new social roles. Dr. Miserow codified these into seven stages. As Dr. Hogan mentioned, the first is a disorienting dilemma. This is where a person finds that what they thought or believed in the past may not be accurate. And while uncomfortable and challenging, these kinds of aha moments are key sparks igniting the transformation process. Next is self-examination. After that comes critical assessment of assumptions. Next comes planning a new course of action. After that comes the acquisition of new knowledge or skills to carry out the new action plan. Next comes exploring and trying out new roles and relationships. And finally, there's building self-efficacy in these new roles and relationships. By the way, you can find these stages, their descriptions, and how to facilitate movement through them freely available on the internet. Just search for transformation learning. And if you're interested in personal transformation or in helping others with transformation, you'll definitely want to dig in here. Because as Dr. Hogan mentioned, this really is the leading theory of how meaningful transformation takes place. Sadly, almost no one outside of adult education has ever heard of it, and I consider it sort of a quote-unquote secret weapon in helping people change. He published that in the late 70s. Uh, for, for 12 years in the literature, there, nobody really talked about it. And then in 1990, he published a book on the same thing. And that time, just people started responding to it. And they started, some people were critiquing it and other people were taking it and using it. And then it exploded. Within the discipline of adult education, transformative learning theory has been really the most dominant theory that's used in research, uh, for better and for worse, uh, ever since the 90s. And again, what we're talking about here is the process by which people make significant and irreversible changes in the way they experience, conceptualize, and interact with the world. Whether that's a transformation in how they see gender roles, in how they think about political topics, or in how they orient to their health habits. By significant, I mean like it, it, it really impacts, like it has a major impact. And there's, there's no clean line, like when is it a major impact and when is it a minor impact, right? And is it something that changes you in all of the contexts of your life? Right? Like I could change in major ways in, in terms of my relationship with, with one person, like my best friend, right? That doesn't mean I transformed as a person. But if I changed in a way that affected my relationship with everybody, then I think, you know, yeah, maybe that was transformational. I have a framework I call learning, doing, becoming, and being 
that I brought up at this point. And here's how Dr. Hogan addressed that. The way I would talk about that from my lens is, you know, learning a lot of times we mean like gaining knowledge or developing a skill, right? And doing is presumably using that stuff, but actually engaging in specific behaviors. The being is, that's where I get interested because that's, that's much more when I think transformative change happens. After a little more reflection, Dr. Hogan followed up with this. When I think about your notion of being as, a, as, you know, as distinct from learning and doing, some things that, are, that occur to me is one, this, this sense of identity, this sense of self, right? Like I am healthy versus feeling like I'm an imposter, right? I'm not, I've got these bad habits, a lifetime of bad habits. Yeah, I'm doing okay this week, but, you know, that deeply, deeply internalized sense of who am I in this regard, in terms of health or whatever. Um, but also being, I, w- I would think in terms of ontology, like how do you feel on a moment-to-moment basis? Like, that, you know, there's, you know, optimistic or pessimistic or happy or unhappy or, or whatever, right? What are your knee-jerk reactions to things? When something bad happens with it and you don't really have time to think through your response, how do you respond? So I've had a really bad day at work, lost an account. It's really stressful. I go home from work. What do I do if I don't think about it really carefully? Do I binge eat? Do I, do I, do I just get drunk? Or do I go run till I... <laughs> Like puke. I mean, you know, there, there's healthy and unhealthy, whatever, um, with all those. But I think when I think of being, I think in terms of those kinds of things. The, um, how do I react when I don't have time to think it through and make a plan? Okay, I'm going to take a little break here so I can talk about one of our sponsors, Precision Nutrition. You might say this episode is right in their wheelhouse because Precision Nutrition is the health and fitness industry's leader in behavior change coaching. So if today's podcast makes you want to learn more, you've got to check out their programs. Using the Precision Nutrition method, which has been proven with over 100,000 clients, they teach fitness professionals, health coaches, dietitians, doctors, nurses, manual therapists, how to help anyone make healthy behaviors automatic. In fact, the Precision Nutrition Level 1 Certification is the world's number one rated nutrition coaching certification program. And its secret sauce is the art and science of behavior change. But maybe you're just looking to improve your own behaviors so that you can start to eat healthier, move more, and feel better. Well, good news, the Precision Nutrition Coaching Program can help you with that too. Want to learn more about either Precision Nutrition Coaching or the Precision Nutrition Certification? then head over to www.precisionnutrition.com forward slash JB. My initials for access to free courses you can start today and a nice discount on their paid programs. Again, that's www.precisionnutrition.com forward slash JB. One thing I always wondered was whether transformation learning models were more descriptive tools, in other words, used to describe how people change, or more prescriptive tools. In other words, they show you how to walk yourself or someone else through change. Dr. Hogan says it's a little bit of both. So if you're a researcher, 
then it's it's a descriptive lens, right? It's it's a way of trying to understand the process. But if you're an educator, and broadly defined, in some ways it does turn prescriptive, right? Like what's the purpose of understanding the process if you're not going to use that understanding to try to, to aid in, in what you whatever you do to educate? But this is where he suggests a kind of caution that I was both a bit surprised by, but also happy to hear. When you're talking about people changing in dramatic ways, then it begs the question, you know, what right do you have to try to change somebody else in major ways? Now, I'm not saying you never do, right? If somebody came, came to you, came, came to me, whatever, and said, hey, I really want to change in these dramatic ways, and I think you could help me, will you help me? Then sure, right? I mean, then, then you might be able to use the theory as a prescriptive lens to say, how can we help this person engage in this process, but apart from that, I would have huge. I just have huge problems, and I see it all the time. And I'm, I'm the editor of the Journal of Transformative Education. I see a lot of manuscripts come in, and a lot of times you'll see these scholars writing saying, "Hey, I'm a, I'm a, an instructor in this program, and we just decided we really wanted to come, to transform people because it makes us look like our program is doing something big." And so we're really, and I'm like, "What? You don't have the right, what right do you have to decide how they need to be?" When I pressed him for more on this. There's a few ways of thinking about it. So one way is literally I call it prescriptive. And that is, if that's not really clear up front, then I, then I, I personally think that people don't have the right to train, change others. But, but sometimes it is. Like, let's say military boot camp. When that's trying to transform. <laughs> There's no way that that's what that's trying to do. And I don't have a problem with that because everybody entering it knows exactly what they're, they're there and presumably they signed up for it. Right, so I don't have a problem with that. Some, if you're a, a personal coach and somebody comes to you and says, "I want to change," of course, right? I just think in, in instances where it's not clear in the message and, and and you're just trying to change people, a lot of times that means like you're trying to get them to adopt a very particular point of view. But there's also a way of approaching it that I call process oriented. So I'm teaching community college, and I want my students to develop the skills of critical thinking and the habit of critical thinking. I know that this has potential in the long term to be transformative, but that's different. I'm not trying to transform them, right? I'm not trying to change it. I'm trying to teach, give them tools that they can choose to engage with or not, but they do potentially have the long-term capacity for that. So critical thinking or developing empathy or uh, exercising creativity. There's a lot of things, processes we help people develop because we think they do have long-term potential, but that's different than trying to transform somebody to the image that you have for them. I, I, I do see around me a lot, not, not just in my discipline, just in general, that people seem to want others to be like them, or they want others to fit the image that they have that they should be. And I think that's reasonable in some ways, and it's, and it's easily abused in other ways. I think humans have the capability of being just really awesome and really caring and giving, sacrificing, and we are capable of just being awful. And a lot of times what I think is, would be more important is to say, how do we create environments that people grow and evolve and maybe transform in ways that are more awesome and less despicable? Um, and I'm, I'm, the jury's out on whether I think there's a net good or bad about the, the context that we live in. But um, I think that's what I tend to focus on more is how do we, how do we create environments that allow for people to kind of, you know, grow into themselves 
the way they want to and the ways that, that seem good to them. In part one of this series, Dr. B.J. Fogg championed the idea of habit development as a way to change behavior and achieve positive improvements in one's life. And Dr. Casey Joe Orvidas talked about how a growth mindset can increase the probability of a new habit sticking. I couldn't help but wonder how those concepts play together with transformation learning ideas. Certainly there's a difference between learning a skill, between practicing some act and developing a habit, right? I mean, obviously there's a difference there. In terms of major change, like transformation, if you will, I, I think there's, there's a reciprocal relationship between how you're thinking and feeling and how you're acting, right? And there's, there's, it's a, you know, there's not just one path. So if I'm not thinking it and feeling it well, but you get me to engage in certain behaviors over time, I think because you're engaged in those behaviors, your thinking is going to follow for lack of a better term, you're, for lack of a better reason, you're going to create justifications of why you're doing what you're doing. When the real reason why you're doing what you're doing is because structurally, socially, the environment, the situation you're in gets you to act a certain way. Mentally, you need to make sure there's no cognitive dissonance. So you'll come up with ways of thinking that support it. So um, that's behavior-based you know, kind of instruction. Um, and that can be really powerful. I don't, I don't find that manipulative. I find that that can be a very powerful, anything can be manipulative. But I find that a very powerful way of, of, of helping somebody change who wants to change is sometimes it's easier to start with behaviors, right? You don't have to change their thinking first. But then, of course, obviously, if somebody changes how they, how they think through something, then they, you know, if it's really a change, then their behaviors should change as well. So I, that's why I'm saying I think it's a reciprocal relationship. Dr. Orvidus also talked about this kind of reciprocal determinism as well. So I think it's important from a behavior change perspective to look at all of these different layers and understand how they play off of each other. For instance, like social cognitive theory is person, environment, it's behavior, it's understanding how all of those things then play with each other. It's reciprocal determinism. It's not just this one thing is important. This one thing is important. I think that's what we learn from all of these theories is that it's not just one thing. So your environment could be improving. But like I was saying before, maybe you still at the end of the day, like your cognitions aren't in the right spot. So you're not necessarily in the headspace that you believe that you can change. So even though, you know, maybe suddenly there are sidewalks outside in your neighborhood in a playground and you're a 10 year old boy and you are like, okay, well, there's nowhere for me to, you know, be active. And I'm just like always going to be the lazy kid or the overweight kid. Like suddenly things are changing and gives you that chance to do so. But if you still think to yourself, oh, well, I'm just, I am just the overweight kid. You know, what's the point of trying, you know, my, my parents are overweight. So it's just like part of who I am. Then there, he's never going to try in the first place to get outside. So, um, it's this, I reciprocal, why is this word so hard for me? Reciprocal <laughs> determinism. It's a mouthful is essentially just this idea that all of these counterparts do play a role in the overall determination of whether or not someone can change. I found these ideas really interesting as they suggest that transformation could happen either starting from a big mental paradigm shift, which then sort of propagates down from one's head to one's hands, in other words, their behaviors, 
Or it could happen starting with small changes in daily routines and habits, which then could propagate up from one's hands to one's head. It also makes me wonder if both are happening at the same time, does the probability of change end up increasing? I guess we'll have to let our adult education friends and psychology friends, two groups that don't often research together, figure this out. In the meantime, Dr. Fogg adds another factor that can increase one's probability of success, a kind and supportive coach. One of the projects we did in late 2020 was to analyze our most successful tiny habits coaches, the top 25% against the lowest 25%. And the number one differentiator was the most effective coaches were perceived as kind and supportive, period. It wasn't knowledgeable. It wasn't they had mastered their own behavior. It wasn't that they were role models in fitness and wellness and mental health. It was they were kind and supportive. Let me go back a little bit. So that was data from people who do tiny habits. That's not CrossFit data, okay? (laughs) That's not like boxing champion data. That's not like, you know, football, high school football data, okay? So it could be in other contexts that other types of coaching can be more effective or perceived as more effective. But when it comes to habits and people trying to change their personal lives, I would think the vast majority of people are insecure. The vast majority of people are, have failed over and over. Uh, and I think that's why in, t- in the tiny habits data we saw being kind and supportive was so important. Speaking of different coaching styles, I talked with Dr. T. Williams, a consultant, speaker, and educator with over 20 years of experience helping people learn about the complexities of diversity and inclusion, organizational leadership, and personal development. Here's Dr. T. When I left academia, I spent some time figuring out, hey, what do you want to do after this? The field of coaching, for example, emerged out of uh, organizational development. It was something that was done in that field, something I did in that field and really enjoyed. And so I figured, okay, I'll uh, do some coaching. I'm good at that. I like that. Even though I had a doctorate and two master's degrees, I never assumed that I know everything. I know a lot about a little, right? So signed up for this coaching program and I had some problems with the way the the program ran. And part of that was was this idea that was expressed that you can teach any, that, that you can coach anyone using the same exact methodology. And so I would literally get into arguments with, with the trainers at, uh, on these calls because the idea that you can coach someone to excellence and high performance without the consideration of identity, social context, inequality, and all of the other things is a ridiculous idea. If you think that you can coach white wealthy men the same way that you can coach uh, queer trans youth who are poor is ridiculous. Because there are cultural challenges and institutional challenges, among other things, that give them a wholly different experience. Now, this series isn't necessarily about social justice issues. 
But I did want to include Dr. T's commentary here because, well, it's true that most of the best practices in, let's say, behavior change or personal development have emerged in a particular context. And whether that context is universally applicable should be considered. For example, if you believe in evidence-based coaching practices, here's an important question. Where are you getting your evidence? This idea of evidence-based, I think th this is something that must be looked at with great skepticism. Because you know, like I know, when it comes to research, if you ask the right question to the right people and you frame everything correctly, you'll get the right answer. That is why we must look at, at the evidence, quote-unquote, with a critical lens. If this thing is evidence-based, it means that research has been conducted, and what the evidence from that research says is that this is effective. The question for me becomes, like, upon what audience or community was this evidence and this research standardized? Who did you ask these questions to? Right? This is a problem in psychology, where most of the research in psychology that comes out of academia has a huge cultural skew because it is typically done on white, middle-class college students without consideration for how race, culture, gender or gender identity, socioeconomic class, religion plays a part in these things. So when you say evidence-based coaching, my first thought is, where'd you get this evidence? This introduction to the idea of applying skepticism and a critical lens to some of these topics sets us up nicely for part three of our series, where we'll talk with happiness researcher Dr. Jillian Mandich and therapist Bruce Tift, who had a lot to say about our sometimes compulsive or even obsessive relationship with personal growth. Before we get there, however, I'd like to share one more perspective from Dr. Hogan. Here he discusses how adult educational theorists think about the purpose of education as it exists in larger social systems. For one thing, there's a, there's a mantra that's, that's fairly common in, in adult education and probably education writ large, and that's that education is never neutral. It can't be neutral. It either supports the status quo, usually implicitly, or it challenges the status quo. And of course, you know, 99% of all education supports the status quo. And that's kind of the purpose of education, right? How do you function within the system that exists now? Right or wrong, good or bad, whatever. And so this notion that education supports a system or challenges it leads a lot of scholars to say, all of our efforts in education should be about challenging the system because the system is flawed and it's in, in being flawed is really hurtful to a lot of people. There's always a system, institutions, cultural norms, social norms, economics, all that, whatever. It's this big mess milieu that we live in. There's always a system. And I promise you, there is not a system possible that everybody's going to say, this is a good system. It's just not going to happen. You can, you can always complain about the system. And if half the world did like the system, the other half would hate it. So my point is, there's always a system and all of us need to live our life within the system. We also, if we want to have any hope of have a functioning democracy, 
we need to learn how to also change the system. I'm great with that. I'm great with with constantly looking at it. Where's the harm happening? How can we fix it? How can we avoid it? Got it. But to say that it can only be one thing, that learning should only focus on changing the system, doesn't it doesn't make sense to me. And this is a tension that comes up in transformation learning specifically. Some in the field think that transformation learning isn't valid unless it's used for social change. Others, however, think it can be applied more broadly. There's important learning. So for cancer survivors to navigate the psychosocial transition and all the trauma that can arise from from being diagnosed with cancer and going through all that stuff, and then to live a fruitful, happy life, whatever, that's important. And that can be transformational. And that doesn't challenge the system. They're not mutually exclusive. We need, to, we need to help adults, especially when adults come to us as educators and they say, you know, they're not thinking about challenging the system. They're saying, I want a job. <laughs> so maybe I want to be an accountant. Our job is to teach them how to be an accountant, even in a flawed economic system. Got it. That person deserves to be able to get a job. So we help people learn within the system And what I think we need to do a better job is also helping people learn to change the system, which could be a lot of things, right? Critical thinking to civic engagement. And this idea of civic engagement is important as adult education, according to Dr. Hogan, really has its roots in democracy. It's how do we prepare people to function well in a a system where Presumably, it's a rule by the people. And what that is translated into is, in some ways, educational efforts where people are just trying to promote learning in adulthood. I mean, the Great Books program, they used to have traveling educational shows, if you will, where they would travel around the Northeast and just try to help people learn. But also, you know, trade union organizing. Uh, There's a lot of educational efforts around the civil rights movement. So Rosa Parks who very famously refused to give up her seat on the the bus in Birmingham. You know, she had gone to adult education programs at the Highlander School in Tennessee, where they talked about how do you engage in civil disobedience? So adult education always has been how to equip people to be more engaged in life. Okay, so this is where we're going to end part two of this three-part series. In part one, we covered how, maybe surprisingly, academic ideas around habit change and personal development have become so widespread in popular publishing. We talked about why that is and how we may be able to leverage some of these insights in our own lives. We also talked about how the field of adult education has its own insights about the process of personal transformation, some that are different from the field of psychology. In part two, what you just listened to, We continued discussing transformation learning, looking for insights from a field that hasn't quite enjoyed the popularity of habit and behavior science, but is full of important lessons about human transformation. And finally, in part three, we'll turn a critical eye towards change and personal development projects, examining whether they can do more harm than good. We'll also discuss ways of being in the world that aren't centered around obsessive personal development but still oriented toward happiness, and perhaps even more importantly, freedom, while still recognizing the social context in which we all live. 
Before we end, I want to let you know that the Dr. John Berardi Show is now on YouTube and that we're running a little contest over there with our two sponsors, Precision Nutrition and Changemaker Academy. There are $15,000 in prizes up for grabs, and all you have to do to enter, it's really simple, is to subscribe to our new YouTube channel and take a screenshot of your subscription. Once you have that, email it to us at youtube at drjohnberardishow.com. Make sure you spell it D-R rather than D-O-C-T-O-R, and you're done. Like I said, really simple. From there, just before the release of our next show, we'll randomly select three winners who get to choose from among 15,000 in prizes, including a spot in the Precision Nutrition Level 1 certification, the Precision Nutrition Level 2 certification, or Precision Nutrition Coaching. Winners get to choose which one they want. Winners also get to choose one of the following, a copy of my book, Changemaker, or up to $75 of Precision Nutrition Apparel. And finally, winners also get a spot in Changemaker Academy's new course, The Career Blueprint. Can't wait to find out who wins. Before signing off, I'd like to thank our production team, Marjorie Korn, my research partner and co-writer on the show, Martin D'Souza, our producer, Dylan Groff, who edited and sound designed this episode. And thanks to you for listening.